Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, we ask that you would help us to meditate upon your word. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would look at it and consider it and consider how it particularly applies to our life today. We know that this scripture that is before us is timeless and it does apply to us today. But, Lord, we pray that you would, by, your power, by the power of your Holy Spirit, show us how it applies to us even now. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, this morning we turn once more to the book of 1 Samuel, which we've been working through together, and the passage that we're looking at is found on page 266 of the Church Bibles, page 266, and we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 5, which comes after the Philistines have defeated the Israelites in battle. Israel is living in the land of Israel at this time. They've come out of Egypt many years earlier. There's been a period where different judges have been leading leading them. And then Eli, the priest, has been leading them. Uh, And then under Eli, Samuel has been growing up. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have also grown up under Eli. They have been evil and doing what is wrong as priests. But there's this little boy, Samuel, who's been growing up as well, along with these sons of Eli, and he is shown to be a prophet of God, that God speaks to him. But last chapter, we saw that the Israelites went out in battle against the Philistines. They lost, and then they had this grand idea that if we take God with us in the ark, if we take the symbol of God's presence with us, then we will win. And so last week we looked at how we often try to manipulate God into our lives to do what we would have him do rather than consider what he would have us do himself. And so last week we saw this terrible thing happens that the ark of God is captured by the Philistines. And this leads people back home in Israel to despair. Eli falls off his chair in in, uh, distress about what has happened to the ark of God. He dies. And also we see that his uh, daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, also dies at this time. And she concludes chapter of 1 Samuel with verse 22 she says the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured and that's where we left our, our narrative last time when we were studying it together and so now we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 5 with what happens to the ark of God the ark of God is as it has been captured by the Philistines look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 5 verse 1 page 266 of the church bibles 1 Samuel chapter 5 verse 1 after the Philistines had captured the ark of God they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon Dagon is their god they take this ark which they would see as the god of the israelites they take it and they set it up in the temple of dagon why would they put it there well they're claiming that their god is superior to the israelite god they're putting it there as an object which has been reigned over just as they have reigned over the israelites in defeating them in battle now they're showing that their god is superior to the god of the israelites they have subdued the israelites and even subdued the Israelite God by the power of Dagon, their God. But then what happens? Verse 3. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. 
So they put, uh, they put the ark in the temple. They go to bed. Next morning, wake up. Dagon's fallen over before the, fa- uh, before the ark of Israel. Question is asked, well, why has this happened? And it looks like the, the Philistines at this stage just think, oh, it's an accident. Accident has happened. It's nothing really to do with the ark of the Israelite gods at present. And if it is, really, it's just a coincidence that's gone on here. It's nothing, no big deal. We'll pick up our God and put him back. Then what happens? Verse 4. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. It's happened again. But now what's happened? Continue verse 4. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. So now we see that the God has fallen over, the God of the Philistines, again. And this time his head and his hands have been cut off. And this looks far more suspicious than what had happened the previous day. He's falling over again. It looks suspicious, but the fact that his head and hands have been cut off looks very suspicious that something is up, that it has something to do with the ark of the God of Israel being present. Just as if you were my sister, which she always knew if I'd been around some of her dolls, if the heads uh, were torn off some of her dolls, well, then she would know that something was up. Someone had been here. That is no coincidence. And so the Philistines are starting to realize, oh, The God of Israel is causing pain to come upon our God. And particularly, why is it that the head and hands are cut off? Well, it's showing a military triumph. They thought that their God, Dagon, was triumphant against the Israelites and against the God of the Israelites. But here, by the head being cut off and the hands being cut off, it is showing that the God of Israel is triumphing over Dagon. An enemy... With no head and no hands is not very scary at all. It is not very powerful. And that is what the God of the Philistines looks like at this point in time. Not a very powerful God at all, with his head and his hands cut off. And it's in this passage that we also see that God shows that he is superior, not just to the God of Dagon, but also to the worshippers of Dagon, to the false, he's superior to the false God, and he's also superior to the false worshippers. We read from verse 6 of chapter 5 of 1 Samuel. Verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us. And our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, 
and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. As I said before, God is showing his superiority. The God of Israel is showing his superiority to the God of the Philistines, but also to the worshippers of the God of the Philistines, the Dagon worshippers, that they are having this problem where people are dying and tumours are coming up on them. What the tumours exactly are, we don't quite know, but evidently they were fatal. What was happening to the Philistines was terrible. And I think this is a very good lesson for us to draw today as we sometimes are prone to despair like the people of Israel. We need to be reminded of God's superiority. We see at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 22, that uh, Phineas's wife uh, said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. And sometimes we're prone to have this kind of attitude as well, the way that we see that the presence of God is dominated by others around us. It is uh, our understanding that the Spirit of God, from the Scriptures we learn, that the Spirit of God comes and lives in us, that we are arcs in one sense of the Lord today, that his presence is within us. And then what do we see happening to the little arcs of God all around this world? Well, we see the enemy exerting their power and influence over them and domination and even destroying the arcs of God's presence that are around this world. As we look at the church and we look at it in history, we see again and again that people exert this domineering attitude over the church, over Christians, over these little arcs of God that are all through uh, history and even down to today. And this has been going on and again and again. As we look at the persecuted church in history, we see that people were awful to the church that the Philistines' attitude was still there right from uh, the beginning, from the apostles right through to today. And if you uh, look at different accounts of it, you can see it quite clearly. And one account that I've just read recently is from Jonathan Edwards. He was a pastor in the 1700s in North America. I've been reading his book, which is called The History of the Work of Redemption. It's basically a history of God's redeeming work, beginning from creation right through uh, to the end when Jesus will return. And he talks about the persecuted church in the Roman Empire. And he says this, Take notice of the peculiar circumstances of tribulation and distress just before Constantine the Great, that's the emperor, the Roman emperor, came to the throne. Those who were then in authority, so this is previous Roman emperors, set themselves with the utmost violence to root out Christianity by burning all Bibles and destroying all Christians and therefore they did not stand to try or convict them in a formal process, but fell upon them wherever they could. Sometimes they set fire to houses where multitudes were assembled, burning them all together. At other times they slaughtered such multitudes that their persecutors were quite spent with the labor of killing and tormenting them. And in some populous places, so many were slain that the blood ran like torrents. It is related that 17,000 martyrs were slain in one month's time, and that during the continuance of this persecution in the province of Egypt alone, no less than 144,000 Christians died by the violence of their persecutors, besides 700,000 that died through the fatigues of banishment or the public works to which they were condemned. Often Christians were sent to mines to work there until they died. They were used basically as as cattle, as robots, as just tools in a machine to 
uh, to mine in the mines, and so they were often fatigued and destroyed in that way as well. And here we see, as we look at the early church in the Roman Empire, that people are dominating over the ark of God in many, in many ways as we understand that the Spirit lived in these people. But it continues today as well. Just the Guardian newspaper reported this month, this month, that the pervasive persecution of Christians, sometimes amounting to genocide, is ongoing in parts of the Middle East and has prompted an exodus in the past two decades, according to a report from the British Foreign Secretary. There's basically a genocide happening in the Middle East on Christians. Millions of Christians in the region have been uprooted from their homes and many have been killed, kidnapped, imprisoned and discriminated against, the report finds. And then a quote from uh, the report, it says, The inconvenient truth is that the overwhelming majority, 80%, of persecuted religious believers are Christians. If someone's being persecuted for their religious belief, it is usually because they are a Christian. What we have forgotten in this atmosphere of political correctness is actually the Christians that are being persecuted are some of the poorest people on the planet. In the Middle East, the population of Christians used to be about 20%. Now it's about 5%. People continue to exert influence and domination over the ark of God. And this could lead us to despair. As we look at these reports that are coming even today, and as we look at the history of the church, and we see again and again that people exert themselves over, just like the Philistines did with their god Dagon, over the ark of God, the body of God as known in Christ Jesus, we could be led to despair. But then as we look at the scriptures, we see encouragement from a passage like the one today, we see that one day all gods and false worshippers will bow before him. What do we learn from Dagon? He fell over before God. What do we learn from Dagon's worshippers? They started to die as well. And so we can see that God is quite capable of fighting his own battles. He is quite capable of fighting his battles. And one day all will bow before him. And not only will they bow, but their heads and hands will be cut off as their strength is destroyed. All false arguments and philosophies that are raised up against the church will be destroyed one day. They will come to nothing. Atheism, agnosticism, humanism, materialism, existentialism, Marxism, relativism, all these different philosophies that people rise up and say, this proves that... The Christian church has been dominated and should be destroyed and no longer have any sort of voice in our country. They'll one day come to be defeated themselves and they will no longer exist. All weapons, armies, governments, media outlets which broadcast untruths about Christianity and untruths about this world and all false religions, they will be destroyed as well one day. We see this from Dagon many years ago that he fell over before the face of God and one day all will fall before the face of God. How do I know that? Not just from 1 Samuel chapter 5 but from the rest of the scriptures, from so many passages. But I'll look with you at one in particular this morning, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. Turn with me there now. It's page 1230 of the church Bibles. If you think that the enemy reigns supreme over the church of God, then this passage is very helpful 
in expelling such ideas from your head. Revelation chapter 20, reading from verse 7, so page 1,230. 1,230, Revelation chapter 20, reading from verse 7. And so this is uh, a report that comes through the Apostle John uh, as revealed to him by Jesus and angels. And so we see in chapter 20, verse 7, it says, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth, and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. This looks like a formidable army if we've ever seen one. This is one where they are like the sand on the seashore, and Satan is with them. He's gathered them all together. What is going to happen? God is going to be defeated? No, we read in verse 10, uh, verse 9, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that's just one passage in the scriptures that tell us that God will reign supreme in the end. Yes, he allows people to dominate the ark of God in various ways here in this world. But he is quite capable of making sure that he wins in the end. And he has his reasons for allowing them to dominate at this stage. We don't always know why, but he does. And we know that though they dominate at this stage, he will dominate in the end. And when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we see this so clearly as well. What do we see when the Lord Jesus was here on earth? We see evil people triumphing over him flogging him, mocking him, cursing him, putting him up on a cross and proclaiming that we are the ones who have shown our power here today. But what happened? Jesus did die, but he came back to life, and we know that one day all will bow the knee before him, that all will be made subject to him. We saw it in that psalm in Psalm 8 as we started the service and then we heard that psalm quoted again in Hebrews chapter 2 where it says that God has left nothing that is not subject to him that he's put everything under him and God has not left anything that is not subject to him and so we can know that one day the laughter of evildoers who think that they reign over the Christian church that that laughter will turn to screams. And the groans of the church who worry that God has left this world and abandoned his people, those groans will turn to singing as we see the triumph of God, as he comes back, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself returns and puts everything under his feet. So one thing we can learn from 1 Samuel chapter 5 is that we should not despair, that everything works out in the end, that all Dagons will fall, all false worshippers will fall and be made subject to God. The other thing that we can learn is that we should make sure that we do not put any idols next to God. We should not put any idols next to God. 
See, the, is, the Philistines here, they take that Ark of God and they put it in the temple of Dagon, their God, and it may be that they are subjecting, they're saying our God is superior, and I'm sure that is on many levels that they're saying that. But the other thing they might have been doing is saying, well, we'll worship the God of Israel alongside Dagon. Dagon may still be our superior God, but we'll start worshipping this Ark. Rather than destroy it altogether, they put it in their temple. And so they're putting that Ark there, and they may be involved in a bit of what we call syncretism, where you can think you can worship multiple gods at the same time. But what does God show in 1 Samuel chapter 5? There is no place for worshipping him alongside another God. Our God is a jealous God, and he will have no other gods before him. And he does not share his glory with another. And so we have to be very careful that we do not place idols of the heart alongside our God. How do we know what idols we may have that we keep propping up before God? Well, you identify idols that are in your life by looking at where your time and money goes. They're very good ways to look at the idols in your life. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? Look at your life. What could you see that could be an idol in your life? Could it be your work? Could it be a desire for power or for money? A desire for possessions? For your spouse, for your children, for friends, for entertainment. These things can all become idols which we set alongside God. We can also set ourselves up as idols in our life. And we worship ourselves along with God. So look at your life and look at your time and look at your money and see where they are being spent. And then ask the question, why do I put my time and my money into such things? Because many of these things are very good. To work is a good thing. To have a spouse, to have children, to have friends, to enjoy some of the pleasures of this world, they're good things. But we must ask ourselves the question, why do I invest my time and money in such things? Is it because they have become an idol in themselves or they're in some way to achieve an idol of my own self or something else? Even children can ask this. Why am I doing what I am doing? Is it for my own self-righteousness? Is it for pleasure? Or is it as thanksgiving from God that I do the things that I do? Even going to school. Why do you go to school? Do you do it to please yourself, to please your teachers? Do you do it to please your parents? What is the reason you spend so much time on education? One of our children is thinking of entering a spelling bee at school and was getting a bit frustrated with not being able to know all the words. And it's optional whether you go into the spelling bee. And so we were saying, well, why do you want to do it? You don't have to do it. Why do you want to do it? And you can quickly think, oh, it's ideas of grandeur, of winning the spelling bee, and and the praise that will come from men. What should be the reason for doing it? Well, it's for the glory of God. You should want to do it, to use the mind that he has given you as a sign of thanksgiving to what he has given you, and you want to honour him by doing well at school. But that goes for all of us. We should be asking, what am I spending my time and money on? And then look at those those consumers of your time and money and say, why do I do those things? Do I do them for the glory of God, or do I do them for the glory of another, for an idol instead? And if you find idols in your life, which are very easy to find, what do you need to do? Well, you need to repent of them because you are without excuse. 
You're without excuse. If you have those idols in your life, God sees what you are doing and he knows that he has given you every reason to destroy such idols. The Philistines had such reason. Look at the Philistines. They had captured the Ark of God and they knew what the God of Israel had done in the past, but they continued to worship their God, Dagon. We saw back in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 5, when the, the crowd was shouting, the Israelites were shouting in the, uh, as the ark of God came into the camp and the battlefield, they got afraid and we saw that they acknowledged that a God has come into camp. And then in verse 8, it says that the Israelites said, Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. The Philistines knew who the God of Israel was. But they continued to worship Dagon. They knew that he had destroyed the Egyptians. And they knew that the God of Israel had knocked over their God Dagon and cut off his head and cut off his hands. It's too big a coincidence not to realize. They also very clearly knew that the God of Israel had dominated their towns by the fact that people were dying from plagues. They had all these evidences that maybe we should start worshipping the God of Israel and worship him alone. But what do they do? They put him there alongside their God in their temple. And we are without excuse as well. We have every reason to know that we should never put any idol next to God. Why? Because God demonstrates his superiority to false gods all the time and his superiority to false worldviews all the time. How? Well, our conscience continues to trouble us about our sins and our guilt and our shame. People go around saying, oh, everything is relative. But then they continue to worry about the sin in their life. That's the conscience warning them that they have no reason to worship any gods other than the God of Scripture. Suffering and pain comes into your life. Why does it come in? To remind you that you should be worshipping God alone. And people can feel like that. They can say, oh, it feels like someone's oppressing me. All these bad things are happening to me. And you ask why? Why? Because God is wanting you to get rid of the idols out of your life. And then, of course, God's word. God's word reminds you again and again and again that you should never worship anything other than God alone, that you should rid your heart of all idols. And so we should resist the temptation when we spot idols in our life, things that have consumed our lives and we're worshipping alongside God, we should resist temptation to do what the Philistines did. When they came to the realization that the God of Israel was very powerful, what did they do? Well, they propped their idol back up. They saw him fall down, they put him back up. And what happened when they saw the suffering and pain coming to their, their lives? Well, they tried to get rid of the Israelite ark of God. They tried to send it away, get it away from us, rather than worship the God of Israel. And that's what we tend to do as well. When we see an idol having some cracks in it, we try to repair it. When it falls over, we try to put it back up. And we ignore the problems that may be there with that idol that has come into our life. And we try to eradicate the scriptures, eradicate Christians from our life, so that we're not conscious of how that idol has taken over us. And so we continue to put that idol back together so that we can enjoy its pleasure for a short time. I like to water my plants in my front garden with a watering can. 
And uh, I've had these watering cans for a while now. And the other day I was doing the watering and I picked up one of the cans and after I'd filled it and water started to gush out one part of it. There was a crack in it. And my son was with me. He was helping me water the garden. And he said, duct tape, Dad, duct tape. I said, oh, good idea, Josh. I've taught you well. Uh, yes, we will put some duct tape on it. But for now, I just ignore it. I'll try and use it without getting the duct tape out because I just wanted to water the plants and go back to my other business. But yesterday, I got the duct tape out as I went to water my plants, put duct tape over it, and Josh is there, and he's, he's pointing out different cracks, and he said, oh, and there's another one on this side, and there's ones where it's not leaking yet, but it does look like there will be cracks there in the future. And so I'm putting this duct tape around this watering can so that I can continue using it. And one day I fear, though, that there'll be more duct tape than watering can on this watering can. What should I do instead? Well, I should get rid of the watering can and get a new one. And sadly, that's what we do with idols of the heart so often. We wrap them up in duct tape. We, we go against our conscience. We go against the scriptures. We go against the pain that may be coming as we worship such an idol. We keep telling ourselves that, that worshipping that idol is okay, that God doesn't see or God doesn't mind that we worship that idol alongside with him. And what should we do? We should get rid of such broken idols that have cracks showing in them all too easily if we care to look. And we should worship Jesus alone. We should worship the God of Israel alone. Why? Why should you worship God alone? Because one day we'll all bow before him. We'll all bow before God. On this side of judgment we will bow or the other side we will bow as well. And so I want everyone in this room to meet Jesus as one who destroys our enemies rather than destroys you as one of his enemies, as he did with the Philistines so many years ago. Turn to him now. Trust in him. Worship him and him alone. And if you have been a Christian for many years, continue to fight the sin that so easily entangles. Continue to fight against those idols because God does not share his glory with another. Fight against them. Fight, fight, fight. Don't repair the cracks in such idols. Destroy them and continue worshipping God alone. Let's speak with him now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as a God who reigns over all other gods, all false religions over all people. You reign over Dagon. You reign over Krishna. You reign over Allah. You reign over all. And one day you will destroy all false gods. You reign and you will destroy. We know because your scriptures tell us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to rejoice in this truth and not despair when we see the enemy attacking us. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would give us a hope in your word. And, Lord, we pray that we would rejoice that no matter how much people may dominate over the arcs of God around this world, your people, oh, Lord, we pray that we would know that we will reign with you one day. And, Lord, we ask also as we come and look at this passage together, we pray that you would forgive us for the idolatry of our past and help us to continue to destroy any idols of our hearts. Oh, Lord, we pray that even this afternoon we may examine what do I spend my time and money on most and then ask why. And if it's not for your glory, oh, Lord, we pray that we would change the attitude of our heart and worship you alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.